0: Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This
1: is your icebreaker. All right, I got a joke for you. What does the hippie say when they're about to get evicted? No oh Namaste. I am Rico Galliano. I am Brendan Francis
2: Noonan and from APM, American Public Media. This is the Dinner Party Download. Culture, food, and humor
0: to fuel your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from Julian Ehrlich and Max Kakasik of the band Whitney. That'll break the ice. Later in the show, they will spin you a rooftop party playlist. Plus, we'll speak with Ava DuVernay, director of Selma, about her acclaimed Oscar-bound documentary about mass incarceration, 13th.
2: Also coming up, legendary sex pistol Steve Jones tells you when it's okay to steal from your opening act, comedian Baron Vaughn gives us an English lesson, and I visit the intersection of pancake and cheesesteak. It's
0: the tastiest address in New York City right now, but first, small talk. (laughs)
2: All week long, you've been hearing this in the news. We must be clear-eyed about our relationship
3: with Russia.
4: The Golden Globe goes to... La La Land.
5: It has been the honor of my life to serve you. I won't stop.
2: Now for something you might not have heard, we're joined by Rebecca Lehrer. She is the co-host of the Mashup Americans, which is a podcast about culture and identity. Rebecca, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend?
6: I'm talking about teeth, you guys. It turns okay. out it. that some British scientists just discovered that a certain Alzheimer's drugs can actually help your teeth grow back.
2: What? Whoa. Yeah. So how does this work?
6: So apparently you put a small biodegradable sponge with this tie which is the medicine, into okay. a hole, a cavity in your mouth, and then your teeth parts, the dentine, grows back. You so, guys, it's happening. Parents around
2: the world just lost so much leverage <laughs> it's really about, yeah. about what their kids should and should not be eating. I this goes hand a...
6: in hand with that research recently about how you don't need a floss. We yes. could just
0: eat sour
2: patch straws. Oh, my God. Kids are going to have Girl Scout cookies for dinner.
6: Oh, my. But the thing about this is that it doesn't include the fact you'll also get fat.
0: Oh, <laughs> so it's not. Well, we're working on that. Yeah, I'm sure just British. Just teeth growing. But I do want to know, could you grow back an entire tooth? Are, are hockey players now off the hook? I,
6: I don't actually know yet, um, so hockey players, please hold off on buying tie-dye but you won't need fillings necessarily anymore. Um, I
2: think I know who's about to become knighted in England, the scientists <laughs> that
0: figured out how to fix teeth. Rebecca Lara, thanks so much for the small talk. Thank you. And now time for cocktails. Make them as sweet as possible. Who cares? <laughs>
2: This is the part of the show where we tell you something that happened in history and ask a bartender to capture its essence in cocktail form. It's our globally respected history lesson with booze. First, the history part. Right around this time, back in 1933, an invention was patented that makes Rico and I sound a lot better.
0: Michelle Philippi tells the tale.
5: If you're listening to my voice on a radio, you have Edwin Armstrong to thank for it. Armstrong was an audio engineering genius. Among his inventions, a super-sensitive receiver. That's probably part of the radio you're using right now. By age 33, he was a millionaire. So it made sense when, in the 1920s, the head of RCA suggested Armstrong tackle radio's biggest problem, static. See, back then, there was only AM radio, and AM broadcasts were and still are full of noisy static. RCA hoped Armstrong could come up with some kind of device that could make AM broadcasts sound better. Instead, he came up with a whole different way to broadcast. It was called frequency modulation. By varying the frequency of a radio wave, he virtually eliminated static. In fact, it was some of the highest fidelity audio anyone had ever heard. In winter 1933, Armstrong patented his process for FM radio. But RCA wasn't interested. They were about to launch the next big thing, TV. And anyway, FM threatened to render their AM empire obsolete. So they worked to keep FM from catching on. And when it did anyway they wouldn't pay royalties on the technology. After a decade of fighting them and others in court, Armstrong finally wrote his wife a note and jumped out of his apartment window. Armstrong's widow kept fighting his lawsuits and eventually won millions. Today, an FM tower he built still stands in New Jersey. After 9-11, when TV and radio stations lost their antennas atop the World Trade Center, some used Armstrong's tower to broadcast. that was
2: the history lesson now it's time for the drink to go along with it i'm on the line with ben schwartz he is bartender and manager at little branch in manhattan a great cocktail bar our story's hero edwin armstrong was a columbia professor and his footprints are all over new york city ben what drink did this story inspire you to make we came up with the clear wireless the clear you're the first person to come up with clear wireless if we're talking about cell phones. Yes.
7: Well, you helped. You were the inspiration.
2: <laughs> All right. So, so similar to how Edwin eliminated static with FM, you've created a drink that clears, clears our heads, clears our minds.
7: We made a clear drink. Oh. You'll look right at it and look right through it. So it'll be nice and crystal clear. Tell us about it. Well, I was inspired by the Marconi Wireless, a classic cocktail. Um, inspired by the creator of the Wireless Telegraph. All right. And this is a darker drink with sweet vermouth and an apple brandy, and I thought that we, I would want to do just what Edmund did and clear this thing up so we can see what we're working with. Well, how come
2: Marconi had his own cocktail? That seems, of all the inventions. You well, because inventions story. were hip and new, and
7: everyone wants to key into what's hip and new, and uh, things were coming out like the filmograph. When that first right. came out, it got, a, it got a cocktail named after it as well.
2: Maybe someday we'll have a, a, a Roomba cocktail.
7: Sure, the iPod cocktail.
2: Actually, you shouldn't operate a Roomba after a cocktail, I think, so maybe that's a bad idea.
7: Yes, watch out, cats.
2: Right. So uh, tell, me, tell me what's in this drink.
7: I start with uh, two ounces of uh, white grape brandy, a Pisco brandy from South America, adding okay. in an ounce of a white vermouth or a Bianco vermouth, then a dash of orange bitters. It's stirred on ice and poured into a cocktail coupe and finished with a lemon twist. And if you could twist that lemon up extra twisty so it would look like a wave, that would fit
2: perfectly. (laughs) Like like as if a radio wave. You got it. Actually, and could you stir this drink with uh, with an antenna? If you
7: had to, if you had one on hand, that would be a very appropriate tool.
2: Clear Wireless, courtesy of the famed Manhattan Bar Little Branch. You'll find that and all our cocktail recipes at dinnerpartydownload.org. And by the way, folks, you may have heard, Norway this
0: week started phasing out FM radio. That's right. They're going all digital. That's right, which is angering some Norwegians who now have to replace their old radios. But not to worry, the New York Times quoted an expert. He says, this doesn't signal a trend. We will still have FM radio here for the foreseeable future.
2: kidding <laughs> i'm not sure that joke's gonna work for podcast listeners no. um,
0: a. or norwegians
2: <laughs> but now it's time for the soundtrack in which your new favorite musician dj's your dinner party
0: and our guests today are julian Ehrlich and max kakasik of whitney the band blends 60s folk and psych rock with a warm orchestral sound on their debut album light upon the lake here they are with a playlist that will raise the roof Hey, this is Max from
1: Whitney. And this is Julian from Whitney. And we are going to soundtrack our own Chicago rooftop party.
8: And um, we're going to kind of draw from real experiences that we've had, having a few of them.
1: Yeah, one that I remember was on 4th of July. We climbed up on the roof and uh, actually wound up falling asleep on the roof. And I woke up with a bunch of crazy sunburns on my thighs and every single nook and cranny of my body. (laughs) And, uh... This is the music that we listened to that night. The first song, I guess, just to kick the party off, would probably be Kala My Friend by Aminaz.
3: Hello, Calla, My Friend. Where
8: do you think you going to? Aminaz are a Zam rock band. It's a genre that I think is around like late sixties, early seventies, psychedelic music that came out of Zambia.
1: You can tell that they had, like, a crappy tape machine. The bass is, like, super out of tune. Definitely didn't have a tuner. Yeah, they did not have a tuner. They were, like, tuning by ear, which, I don't know, when it's out of tune, it just has a little bit more character. I guess the scene of our party, in my mind, looking back on it, the sky is, like, pink for some reason.
8: Kind of like the end of
1: Golden Hour. Yeah.
8: Remember that rope ladder,
1: too? Yeah, we, like we built ladder. a rope ladder up to the roof. It was super uh, irresponsible. We could not get back down.
8: <laughs> Which is why Julian stayed on the roof. <laughs> the second song that we choose to play is called She Turns My Radio On by Jim Ford. This would be like the party jam. Every When we were first discovering Jim Ford, we read something that it's kind of like the undiscovered link between
1: Van Morrison and Sam Cooke. I still don't think he's receiving much praise or like appreciation.
8: One time um, before one of these get togethers, I bought all the taquitos that 7 Eleven had in one go. I brought 40 taquitos with me to the party.
1: Sometimes we'd just go out and buy, like, 40 or 50 cheeseburgers from McDonald's, too, and just make it rain. But we don't do that anymore. We've grown up a little bit. We eat sushi. The next song that we would play at our party is Whispering Pines by the band. The song that you kind of just zone out to it or like listen really intensely, I feel like you'll get the same amount of enjoyment. But Garth Hudson's keyboard work, it just kind of hangs over the top of the entire song and he controls the ceiling of the song, what the sky looks like in the song, if that makes sense. If everything is happening beneath him, like he's controlling the weather.
8: A lot of like touring and hanging out is um, people like talk a bunch and are really distracting. And this is a song where like the whole family will get quiet when we start
1: listening to it because something new pops out every time. Closing out the dinner party, we would do "Light Upon the Lake" by us, Whitney.
9: Far
3: the
8: so when we were writing the song, um, we had the verses plotted out and. Julian actually had one line that he really wanted to say. And the line is, Will life get ahead of me?
1: Like, are we gonna make it through this like crazy transition? It was all-encompassing too. It was like our old band breaking up, it was family members dying, we lost that apartment that we were on the roof on having dinner parties. Yeah, so it was like, are, am I going to make it through or am I going to like stay on top of this crazy wild ride?
3: All these times when
2: Soundtrack from Julian Ehrlich and Max Kaczyk of the band Whitney. They're on tour
0: now. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but coming up, one of the men who advocated anarchy for the United Kingdom has advice for you. Mm-hmm. And acclaimed filmmaker Ava Duvernay humbly discusses her oeuvre.
10: I'm a serious filmmaker. Do you understand me? I am a serious filmmaker.
2: That and more when the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico
0: Galliano. Later, Brendan encounters a hybrid food that might be too good to be true. Alas. And in a few minutes, Sex Pistol's Steve Jones tries and fails to tell you how to be polite. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. All right.
2: And this week, it's trailblazing filmmaker Ava DuVernay. In 2012, she became the first black woman to win Best Director at Sundance. And last year, she earned raves with her civil rights drama Selma and was up for an Oscar for Best Picture.
0: Her latest project is a documentary that's on the short list for Oscar consideration. It is called 13th, and it is a scathing primer on how America came to incarcerate more people than any other country on Earth, many of whom happen to be of color. It features interviews with everyone from CNN's Van Jones to conservative strategist Grover Norquist. Ava's dealt with incarceration in other films. I asked why the topic is important to her.
10: For as long as I can remember, it's been something that captured my imagination, captured my, I don't know, my outrage. The fact that uh, the criminal justice system is unevenly applied. I grew up in Compton, and there was a a heavy police presence, I recall, and still do have feelings of, of, of fear when it comes to the police.
5: Mm-hmm.
10: Growing up, I would see a police officer and wouldn't think safety and, you know, goodwill. I would think fear, what's going on, what's wrong. Going into my college years and studying African-American history, giving historical context to those experiences, led me to start to express myself in my work around these issues.
0: And I mean, I guess also it's a crystallization of different kinds of injustice made tangible in a way. Somebody being imprisoned unjustly just sums up all sorts of injustices.
10: Yeah, you know, I, you know, the cr- criminal justice system is such a catch-all for so many things that are diseased and wrong <laughs> in the way that we behave and in the way that we punish in this society. Yeah, in the 13th, when I originally started working on the DOC, I was very focused on the prison industrial complex. I thought that's what the film would be about, profiting off of punishment.
0: Private prisons and things like
3: that.
10: But yeah, you know, in getting into that, it became clear pretty quickly that you couldn't really do a good job of that without giving historical context. You can't really talk about companies that are, you know, profiting off of prison labor without talking about the Black Codes and the Reconstruction. I had to go back, um, and we went back to the 13th Amendment.
0: Exactly. The film is named after the 13th Amendment, of course, which abolished slavery. You start the film by looking at the moment that amendment took effect which people you interview see as basically just the beginning of a new kind of enslavement. Explain that for those who haven't seen this.
10: Well, the 13th Amendment abolished slavery, but there was a clause, a a loophole in the amendment itself that said that slavery is unconstitutional except if you are deemed a criminal by the state. Mm -hmm. And that loophole allowed southern landowners at the time to basically create a new labor force by criminalizing Black men at the time, primarily, for everything from loitering to unemployment. Those were were crimes. And so all of a sudden, you have your labor force back. And that idea has morphed and transformed and been twisted all the way up into the present day.
0: Watching this, I kept wondering to what extent that was a stated and organized thing. Were these policies centrally planned by, you know, Southern politicians or law enforcement? Or was this just something that, and I put this in quotes, naturally started happening just because the 13th Amendment allowed for it to happen.
10: Well, there are scholars that say that clause is there in the amendment to provide an opening for southern landowners to be able Mm. to, you know, regain some of their labor force. Um, You have other scholars who say, no, this was just a natural. The framers just made a mistake. Yeah, just a little, just overlooked that one part Mm. and uh, just happened. It sounds Um, like you don't buy it it could be. It could be. The bottom line is it was used for for something that's become incredibly negative. And as we hear in the film, Michelle Alexander, the brilliant author of The New Jim Crow, calls it nearly genocidal. So whatever the start of it was, the result is clear. And it's something that we all need to reckon with.
0: You kind of kept this movie a secret almost until the moment it was released last fall. Why was that?
10: It wasn't really a secret. A secret sounds much sexier than it was. <laughs> it was really, um, it's a secret, a secret. Guess what, you guys? I'm doing a secret doc on prisons. No, it was just more, it was just quietly done. I just didn't feel like it needed a big trade announcement, a big, you know, Hollywood Reporter press release. Why not? Well, because...
0: Uh, <laughs> I mean, isn't that what you're going for, is to amplify this issue?
10: Yeah, but I want to amplify this issue. It didn't need an industry announcement. Amplifying the issue and out of Hollywood are two separate things in my mm-hmm. mind. But mm-hmm. certainly, I think in order to get and gain access to the many conservatives that we spoke to, it was important that it just be very kind of grass-rooted and looking people in the eye as opposed to using, you know, hoopla and, and big headlines to to get attention. Speaking of that, by the
0: way, you do you have a, n- a number of conservative representatives here, including just people I was surprised to see, Newt Gingrich and Grover Norquist. Grover Norquist kind of spends a lot of his time on screen denying that there is racial motivation for some of the political policies that were put in place around crime. What was the taping like <laughs> that day?
10: <laughs> well... Um... I was really clear in my request that I'm the lady who made Selma, but I'm not sure that they ever saw what I looked like. I remember one of the conservatives, we interviewed about 10 of them. Um, they're not all identified as conservatives. The ones that people know are Grover and, and Newt, listen me, calling them by their first names, <laughs> like I know them. But, um, your but yeah, 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 old Grover. But um, the bottom line is, you know, my crew is predominantly black or of color. There were some people walking like, whoa, there's a lot of black people here. What is this project again? <laughs> But by the time we have you in the chair and we're not letting you go, so no it was it was they, they were it was interesting I mean it was really illuminating to me just personally it really you know showed me I don't have um I don't have a very diverse or inclusive set of friends. <laughs> like, I don't know conservatives. I don't have yeah. dinner parties with people who have different viewpoints that mean politically, and that's a problem. You know, as much as I can criticize the closed-mindedness and the privilege of someone that stays in their kind of glass house and doesn't know people of color, you know, I don't know any conservatives. I don't know any Christian conservatives that I can sit down with and have a meaningful conversation. So I really use those interviews to really listen and ask the questions that I wanted to ask, and um, it was
0: very constructive. Do you think that you came away with a different point of view?
10: I did. I did. I I learned some things. Right. I learned a lot of things. I mean, I learned that everyone's just not—they're not hysterical. All of them are hysterical, very rational, some smart statements, some smart people that are passionate about what they believe. I disagree with them, but they're not evil. They're not— uh, they're not horrible people. They just have a different way of thinking. They're, the results of their thinking are horrible to me, mm-hmm. but it's coming from a completely rational place in their mind. It was just illuminating to me as I sat across from so many folks.
0: I mentioned in the introduction to you that you are, in, in a lot of ways, a trailblazer. An example of this is your next project which I understand will be the first film helmed by a woman of color with a budget of over 100 million bucks, and that is an adaptation of the young adult book A Wrinkle in Time, which I barely even remember from reading as a kid, other than that it blew my mind. (laughs) I just (laughs) remember being mind-blowingly bizarre, but really Mm -hmm. amazing. What drew you to that book? How how does it fit into your body of
3: work?
10: Well, it's so quirky and weird and awesome. Um, And... (laughs) Uh, that's not how I awesome. describe my body. I, I can't say that any of that describes my body of work, but um, it's a it's about a girl, a girl who travels the universe in search of her father and finds herself. It's this beautiful cross-section, this hybrid of spirituality and social commentary and science, all things that are, are very important to me, um, like my three main interests in life. Mm-hmm. Um, and to do that with the girl-centered story, to have... Disney really agreed with me that the character should be a girl of color, a multicultural cast. I was always interested in doing something sci-fi, and I thought it would be more interstellarish or like a rival <laughs> very serious drama. But this came into my lap, and I uh, I just fell in love with it, and I could see it in my head immediately. I knew what I wanted to do with it. And I think it's just a really, really beautiful story. I and mean, there's something lasting about it. It was written in 1963. It was a banned book, one of the most banned books in American, recent American history. There's a reason for all that. And those reasons uh, are all worthy of exploration. Still
0: a little bit of a political bomb thrower for even in the young adult. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, we have two questions that we ask everyone on the show. And the first one is, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question should we not ask you? What are you tired of being asked? Oh,
10: what am I tired of being asked? Um, I feel like
0: there must be a lot.
10: Gosh, I had like nine questions rushed into my head. <laughs> um, you know, how, like, with your hand on my shoulder, looking deeply into my eyes, how does it feel to be a woman filmmaker? <laughs> how, how do you feel about that? Don't ask me that at the dinner party.
0: <laughs> it seems a little unanswerable, being that you've never been anything else.
10: And yet, it is often asked. All right. Yeah, that's that would be that one.
0: Okay, we'll advise people not to do that. And, yes, uh, please. And our second question is to tell us something we don't know. And this can be about anything. Yourself, a piece of trivia about the world.
10: Oh, my goodness. Tell you something I don't know. The f- the first thing that comes in my head is so ridiculous.
0: Good. What is um,
10: it? It's just um, so ridiculous. Do it. Um. The film that I've seen the most of any film, I'm a serious filmmaker. Yes. Do you understand me? I've noticed. I, I am a serious filmmaker. You
0: have the awards to prove it. Listen,
10: I, a few baubles. The film that i see more than any other film with my sister Tara, who yeah. is just insane for this film. I don't know. It has to be over 100 times. Dirty Dancing. <laughs> okay. I, I we know duh. it by heart. Every word, every word though. But do you know every word though?
0: No, that's true. But it's like it's I thought, taking
10: it too far. It's too much.
0: I don't know what I thought you were going to drop just then. But it's like of <laughs> course, sister. I mean, we all we grew up in the eighties. I get it. You're allowed.
10: But every word, every word. It's too much. It's embarrassing. They're
0: remaking uh, that movie. That well, can...
10: I should be making remaking it. How do I get involved? <laughs> I was gonna say. <laughs>
0: That could have what been studio? your job.
10: Yes, that could have been me. A wrinkle
0: in Time. What are you doing, Ava? I
10: mean, Selma. Come on, yeah. No, I'm going to pursue that. Thanks for the heads up. I'm going to call my agents right now.
3: Baby. Oh, baby.
0: Ava DuVernay, her documentary called Thirteenth is far from escapist fare, but it is a must see. You will find it on Netflix right now. And folks, a while back we interviewed David
2: Oyelowo, who played MLK in Ava's film Selma. You'll find that and all our interviews if you sign up for our podcast. You can do that on iTunes or your favorite podcast app.
0: And now, let's learn some
2: etiquette. Yes, each week you send in your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this time around is punk rock songwriter slash guitarist slash, let's be honest, legend Steve Jones. Yes. Back in the 70s, his band Sex Pistols lasted all three years and put out a single album, but they helped turn punk from a fringe musical movement to a snarling international phenomena. (laughs) That's right. And gave misfits everywhere anthems like Anarchy in the U.K., Autobiography Lonely Boy details his years with the Pistols, but also his hard scrabble early days as a poor young thief in London, mm-hmm. and his more recent exploits as an expat in LA, like DJing on the beloved local radio show Jonesy's Jukebox, Steve. Welcome to the party, and it's an honor to have you here.
4: That was a big buildup. How are you? <laughs> You're worth it. <laughs> Thank you.
2: I'm all right. I, I'm, I'm kind of out of breath after that yeah. That
4: buildup, frankly. <laughs>
0: you...
2: I'll let Rico take the first question.
0: <laughs> um, you mentioned early on that writing the book, quote, is going to feel like that scene in A Clockwork Orange where the main guy has his eyes forced open, beholding the terrible things he's done and that have been done to him, which begs the question,
4: why write it? Why
0: put yourself through it?
4: It's a good question. I mean, I don't know why people write books, really, other than I wanted to get my two cents across. Normally, John Lydon's uh, version, and people who had nothing to do with the situation always have their opinion on what happened, you know, which really gets on my nerves. People who who were on the outside all of a sudden rewrite history, yeah. and know what happened when they wasn't there. So it, it, that was one of the reasons I wanted to do it.
2: Well, something that seems to stick in your craw is the the ongoing belief that the Pistols were influenced by the Ramones and and that Americans like them did all the punk stuff first. Yeah, specifically New Yorkers. And you have a argument
4: to that. Yeah, I, I don't believe that was the case. I mean, don't get me wrong. I like the Ramones, but I also loved the Stooges, even though they wasn't from New York. I love Jonathan Richmond and, yeah. you know, they had their scene in New, New York, you know, but England had our scene. It was completely different. Everyone was broke and the fashion was kind of different. Everyone put their. We just did our bit, man. You know, you get these writers like Legs McNeil and all that saying, what, mm-hmm. oh, man? Oh, 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 New York, <laughs> man. Yeah, yeah. You know, go, go and. Get lost i don't want to swear, but um <laughs> that's the nice of view um, at one point in the book, you actually
0: say that Americans took British punk out of context. What exactly do you mean by that
4: well like if you if you look at some early footage of when the pistols toured America like in Dallas and that, you'd see mm. some of the people show up who thought that they were being punk and it and they look ridiculous, you know <laughs> like how? <laughs> I I don't know, I can't even explain it, but it was was two different places, England and America, and then you got that second wave with all your dead Kennedys, black flags and all that, and then it got all aggro and violent. It just got kind of... All weird! Your shows were pretty aggro, and there was certainly occasional
0: violence going down at them, sort of notoriously, you know, critics getting bottles smashed over their heads and things like that. Do you think that was
4: blown out of proportion? I think I felt comfortable in England. I didn't feel comfortable when we came to the States. It seemed a lot more weird stuff could have happened. Um, like you could have been hurt? Yeah, like, well, I mean, you know, we didn't play the usual places like New York and L.A. We, you know, we played in Texas. And, and yeah. places, you know, it's a good publicity stunt, but, you know... Malcolm yeah. McLaren wasn't the one on stage, you know. Your manager, yeah.
2: That's right. H- having bottles chucked at him. Well, we we want to quickly talk about your influences, uh some of which, considering the band you ended up in are are pretty surprising. Yeah. You talk about becoming transfixed as a kid by Otis Redding's Dock of the Bay, which mm-hmm. is not the punkiest song ever. <laughs> uh
4: h- how did you encounter that song and what and what grabbed you about it? Well, I was I was hanging out at a fun fair. Is that what you call in America? Like yeah, uh... like an amusement park, yeah. <gasps> yeah, exactly. I was by myself, like I always used to be, in in Battersea, a place in London, South London. Yeah. And uh, I was by the uh, Whirlitzes. What's them things that go up and down, and a guy <laughs> stands on the edge? Uh, a merry-go-round? Teacups? Teacups, that I do. Um, All right. It's very British. <laughs> and I would just stand there, because they'd, they'd play music. I remember that played, and it just stuck. And I just waited there for three hours, hoping that it would be played again, that song. And I don't know why certain songs just get in your bones, like resonate is the hit word, I suppose. And, um, you know, there's no right and wrong music. Unfortunately, image plays a big part in things and people f- think, oh, that's corny. I better not say I like that. People are going to think I'm, I'm weak, you know. Yeah, sure. But mm. if you're just true to yourself, like, you know, I was a fan of Boston and Journey and mm. a lot of stuff. And, and, you know, they got the corny reputation, do you think somehow something of, of Dock of the Bay wound up in the music
0: you wrote for the Pistols? I mean, I don't hear it, but is there something sort of in there, do you think? I
4: doubt it. I, I, can't, <laughs> I
2: can't see any <laughs> I would love to be in just... an amusement park where they're playing the Sex Pistols around the teacups <laughs> instead of Otis Redding. That yeah, would well, amazing. I
4: wouldn't sit there for three hours waiting to hear that.
2: <laughs>
3: sitting in the morning sun I'll be sitting in the evening
2: Steve Jones. His new memoir is called Lonely Boy, Tales of a Sex Pistol. And as promised, he'll be back after
0: the break to answer your etiquette questions. Brace yourselves. Also, we eavesdrop on comedian Baron Vaughn. And Brendan finds out what you get when you cross a cheesesteak with a pancake. Dreams that come true is what you get when the Dinner Party Download continues.
3: on dock of the bay,
0: Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, culture, food, and humor to fuel your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano.
2: I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, comedian Baron Vaughn teaches us the meaning of oi. Oi. But first, speaking of British-isms, we continue our conversation with Steve Jones. who is was a founding member of the seminal UK punk band Sex Pistols, and his new autobiography is called Lonely
0: Boy. And uh, speaking of which, Steve... You've been sober for a while now, but in the book you go into detail about your various addictions as a young man. Yeah. One of which was stealing stuff. And we don't want to glamorize this too much, but it's just amazing. You once stole gear from David Bowie after one of his concerts. Tell us about that. Even one of your idols wasn't immune.
4: No no one got away, man. <laughs> no one got away. I'm not what? proud of it, but it was it was a it was an addiction before I re- really discovered hard drugs. And even booze to a certain extent when I started stealing, when I was like 12, 13, whatever it was, 10. I don't, it, it really started after my stepfather messed around with me. Yeah.
0: The, yeah. the one type. Sexually abused by him.
4: Yeah. I had to go out every day. I didn't want to be at home, I didn't feel safe there. And I had to go out and, and try to medicate what happened to me and the way i did that was was through stealing
0: it kind of got um, you away from yourself in a way it got you focused on something else
4: it got me to wake up every day and go somewhere to steal something all the time i mean all the time and this went on for like a couple of years then i'm 14 15 and i'm a teenager and i'm getting into glam rock and you know some some bands had to suffer that you know when i had my thieving hands (laughs) What I did not help it. What did you take? Well, I mean, what's in the book is, is not even a tip of the iceberg to what I stole. Punk was such an extreme
0: movement and truly hated by a lot of people, especially in Britain when you were part of it. The Sex Pistols were literally attacked in the streets after you bashed Queen Elizabeth in the song God Save the Queen. Venues banned you from performing. At that time, did you ever consider that this would be, you know, a lasting thing? That would become part of international popular culture.
4: No, not at all. I mean, it's very hard when you're 21 to see the future. Um, mm-hmm. I had no idea, but uh, you know, it's good to have been in a band that has legs, you know, mm. and and is respected and was revolutionary. You know, it, it, it could, things could be worse. You could have ended up in, like, you know, warrant or something. <laughs> yeah, but, <that's> true. <laughs> but She's My
2: Cherry Pie is, is a classic. There you
4: go. There you go. Well,
2: Steve, as anyone who reads this book uh, will say, you're, you're not exactly a paragon of proper behavior. But <laughs> we did ask our
0: audience to submit some etiquette questions
2: for you. Are you ready to answer these etiquette questions?
0: Yes, sir. All right. Here is something from James in Seattle, Washington. And James writes, Steve... Suppose you're the middle band on a nightclub, Bill. The opening band got you the gig, but they're taking their time breaking down after their set, so your 35-minute set is about to become 20 minutes, and the club management doesn't seem to give a damn. Do you tell the opening band to get off the stage or just start moving their stuff yourselves?
4: No, I just go into their dressing room and steal their wallets. <laughs> <laughs> James, I guess there's your answer. Go, and, go into like, the dressing room and mm-hmm. pilfer. It's good. <laughs> there you go. There's
2: pretty tidy advice for you. This comes from Eric in L.A., and Eric asks, Is there a code of conduct for a mosh pit? Ah, seems seems counterintuitive. Uh,
4: I I have no idea what, where mosh pit started. It didn't. It didn't start in England. The only thing that kind of caught on in England was the pogo. I, that right. that was a that, that was American thing. The mosh pit. Mm. Yeah, right. You want and, to tell? You want for those in the audience who maybe don't know the punk ways. What's the difference? Well, pogo was supposedly started by Sid Vicious yeah. when he was in the audience when he was a fan, he said he would jump up and down to look over the punters that was in front of him to see what was going on. Okay. And then uh-huh. people thought that was a new dance, and it caught on like that. Um, as far as the, the going round and round in circles and punching people... That's I, the match yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I've seen it when we did a reunion in 96 when we played um, the Palladium. In LA. That, 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 yeah, that was a full on mosh pit. They should, um, this is what you should do though. You should tie some kind of electrobes to people. So okay. when they go round and round, they generate some power. <laughs>
0: oh, yeah. Look, yeah. It's green energy.
4: That's it, Mr. Green. Yeah. <laughs> now
2: forget that hippie idea that there's some karmic energy being created by everyone doing it together. You need actual
0: energy. Yeah, for real. Wow, that is Steve.
2: A... You've really, you've really been in LA for a while. That that was where your mind went. <laughs> Do you think it's too? Like, I
0: want,
4: I'll, I want to move up to Northern California. I want to get into nature more.
2: Yeah, that sounds like Northern California. Maybe Neil <laughs> well, Young will let you live in his ranch
4: with that
0: kind of thinking.
4: I know he's got a bunch of acres there. Yeah, I want to see that sitcom, Steve and Neil. That would be nice. I
0: know, I'd watch it. Here is something from Bob in Chicago, and Bob writes: When I'm attending a pro baseball or soccer game, and I get angry at the umpire or referee. What is the best way to express my displeasure?
4: Wrinkle. There are probably kids present. Oh, you mean don't swear because there's kids around? Yeah. Well, you can throw something at them, can't you? <laughs> at the umpire, referee.
0: Sure.
2: That's you're you're the person deciding. So, Steve, if you think it's okay to throw something at someone instead of cursing when a child's present, we'll take it. Yeah, just kill them. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But don't curse while you're doing it. Don't <laughs> yes. curse because there's kids yeah, there around. Kids. Yeah, there's kids around. Okay. Thanks so much for telling your audience how to behave, Steve. You got it.
0: Steve Jones, his new memoir is called Lonely Boy Tales from a Sex Pistol. He also hosts the radio show Jonesy's Jukebox every weekday on the LA station 95.5 KLOS. And
2: folks, if you'd like a punk or just someone of note to yeah. tell you how to live politely with your fellow man, send us your <laughs> adequate questions. Head to dinnerpartydownload.org and click Contact. <laughs>
0: And now the main course, the part of
2: the show where we talk about food. That's right. And Rico, you know that scene in movies where the retired con gets called back in for one more heist? I do. Well, you and I have covered tons of hybrid foods over the years, sushi, burritos, stuff like that. And we kind of agreed that we wouldn't heed their siren calls anymore. And yet. And yet, our producer Krista told me a new shop had opened up in Manhattan. (laughs) It was getting a reputation for their scallion pancake cheesesteaks. Uh Now, I love scallion pancakes, and as an expat Philadelphian, I've had many tarred relationships with cheesesteaks. What
0: could you do, Brendan? What
2: could I do, I ask you. You couldn't do anything. So I took the bait. I took the bait is what I did. And I paid a visit to Johnny Sheck,
9: the owner of a joint called The Bow Shop. And when we met, I asked him how he read my mind. I always liked scallion pancakes, and I was like, You know, it's pretty versatile if people use it correctly. It's thin, crispy. You can, you know, do a lot of different things with it. So I was like, the first one we made was the braised beef wrap. And then we did, okay, now let's make a vegetarian one. So we did a portobello mushroom one. And then one day I was like, I really want a cheesesteak, but I can't really leave the restaurant to get a cheesesteak. So I was like, let me see what I can do making it. And, you know, we do a thin sliced beef on the bugogi beef for our bao. So I was like, okay, let me take some of that unmarinated beef. You know, I have some cheese here. I have some onions. Okay. I was like, the only thing I didn't have was like regular bread. So I was like, what do I have? I was like, okay, scallion pancakes. I was like, wow, that tastes pretty good. Made a couple more times, had a couple other people try it. They're like, it's good, you should sell it. I'm like, yeah, I should. So then I just slapped it on the menu. You know, people are like, "Oh, it's not a Philly cheesesteak." I don't like. I understand. I can call it just a cheesesteak wrap. But if I put the Philly in front, people understand like where it's coming from, what kind it is. But if you put the name Philly in front of the cheesesteak, you also invite more scrutiny from people who understand Philly cheesesteaks. Yeah, you do. But then you know, just more than not, we're trying to educate people on what the food is. That's the hardest thing to do is always educate people on what the food concepts are. Yeah. So the fastest way to do that is just to brand it correctly right away. All right. So then my question is, have you had a Philly cheesesteak? Oh yeah, I've had tons of Philly cheesesteak. I've been to Philly a bunch of different times throughout my life. What's your favorite? I mean, they're very different. It really depends on my level of, uh, I guess, inebriation. And then how much- Wow, you really have had the Philly cheesesteak experience. Yeah, it depends on how much I want to chew. You know, like, you, you go to Geno's, there's a little more chewing involved. You go to Pat's, it's a little more chopped up, you know. So it's like if I'm kind of had a couple too many, i probably go to, you know, I'll go to Pat's because there's less chewing involved because yeah. it's pretty chopped up. But if I feel like, you know, I want a little more bite and, like, I'm a little more head-on straight, then I'll go to Geno's just because I like the texture a little better. So you're talking about Pat and
2: Geno's, the uh, premier cheesesteak destinations in Philadelphia and South Philly, which you've, you've been to, it sounds like, more than once.
9: Yeah, I've had many of those experiences. What do you think makes it such a good sandwich? I mean, what is it what can't you like about it? You got thin Ribeye beef, you got cheese, you got onions. You know, it's all griddled perfectly. You know, you have to. Main thing you have to worry about is being overcooked. You know, like any steak, you're like, oh, it's gonna be overcooked. But this is supposed to be like that. For me, I kind of like that gooey cheesiness because they put that cheese was on. I only really get it with cheese was. I try to provolone, it just doesn't have the same experience. And then the bread kind of wraps it all. So you know. All right, so let's let's get to what I'm smelling, and I just want to really eat right away, but I have to pace myself
2: here. So the wrap is a scallion pancake. I enjoy scallion pancakes, but. I've never made them. What,
9: what, what's behind a scallion pancake? Well, it's just like, you know, flour, water, scallions. It's a pretty simple recipe. I mean, you just get it like layers, like almost like a croissant, you know, where they make layers. That's how you, they make, you know, traditionally you make scallion pancakes. They roll it, you know, roll it out flat, and it's like a tube. Instead of rolling from there, they just wrap it in like almost like a wheel form, mm-hmm. and they flatten it again. And then they'll do it probably, like, twice just to get levels in it, but not too many because it'll break apart because it doesn't have, like, the butter and everything to keep it together. It's mostly you have water, flour, and that's, you know, different oils.
2: One more question before I go into this. So has it been popular since so you put it on the menu?
9: Oh, yeah, it's been very popular. It's one of the most popular items. I mean, we've done this at, you know, like, uh, outdoor events. Since we put it on the menu... I find a lot of people who come into a restaurant aren't sure what to order first time, so I tell them, try this. So they order this and they're like, okay, I understand this, this is familiar to me. They'll try this and they're like, okay, now I understand where this place is going. So they try the other things after, you know. Well, I'm a little nervous because this could be too
2: much of a good thing for me. This could be two good things colliding, which may ruin both of them for me.
9: Yeah, it might ruin it. it you know, like after you have this, you'll have a regular cheesesteak. You're like, it's kind of bready. Just, I kind of like that thin. thin. Oh, you think this might ruin an actual cheesesteak for me? Yeah, It could. I'm telling you, it could. I mean, you know, if you like scallion pancakes, and it's thin and crispy. I mean, you know, the best part about it is you can have two of them and not feel like you're so full. I have two cheesesteaks. I'm like, I'm dying already. You know, I'm like, I, it's coming out my neck, you know.
2: All right. Well, let's see. I'm willing to risk it here because it looks so good. So I'm gonna go in.
9: Do you want to try? You want to have part of my other half here? I had like three yesterday, so I, I can't. I can't be doing that every day, man. My doctor's saying my cholesterol is way too high. I was like, it's because of the Philly. All right. All right. Let me check it out. Hold on.
2: This tastes like this tastes like the legitimate, the same sort of
9: steak they use in Philly with the fried onions. What's the cheese situation here, though? This I don't see the. Um, the cheese whiz here. Oh, yeah, it's a roll, so it has a hole in the bottom. So we put cheese whiz; it kind of falls out because the cheese whiz is very liquidy. We find with the American cheese, it's melty, but it's still kind of like sticky at the same time. So it kind of holds the integrity of the cheesesteak in the wrap. Well, it holds the integrity of the cheesesteak, but they're really, you know, not using cheese whiz, as you know. As a, I don't know if technically we can. Know, that's, we, the this... thing, that's the only thing that we we were fighting on for a while, like. How can we not put cheese was in it but I'm like <laughs> but then if you pick it up the whole thing falls out the bottom so you basically have a pancake with a little bit of essence yeah. and you're eating it off the plate I'm like no nah, I can't do that.
2: I mean I think technically this can't fall under the uh, phylum cheesesteak but I think this is a good thing for me because this is no longer a threat to my love of the cheesesteak. This is something altogether
9: different. Different
2: category now on its own. Johnny Shack. Chef and owner of the Bow Shop. It nice. just moved from Astoria, Queens to the Lower East Side. Enrico, I guess there are food hybrids out there still
0: worth considering. Huh? All right. It's not quite peanut butter and jelly, but we'll, it'll do. Mm, Folks, well. if you want to see pictures of the pancake cheesesteak, head to our website. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. eavesdrop stand-up comic baron vaughn is known for his breakneck absurdity and a voice built for impressions he's also co-hosted a movie podcast with leonard malton and he acted alongside jane fonda in netflix's grace and frankie today we overhear him tell a tale of two
11: letters hello i'm baron vaughn actor comedian writer extraordinaire I had the honor of going to uh, theater school. It's something that people don't do anymore. Nobody goes to theater school, but I did. And my junior year of theater school, we spent a semester in London to study the classics because I'm super fancy. It was a fantastic time. I saw all sorts of things, met lots of interesting people. And one night, was walking down the street with my girlfriend at the time. And I was really happy to find this girlfriend because when I was in England, I'm like, I want to date a British woman. I want to see what uh, British women are like. So, of course, I ended up dating an American RA of my friend's building. Anyway, it was date night. We were uh, dressed to the nines. But we're walking down the street, and I'm doing impersonations of British people. And there's a specific expression that British people use that... I felt like I was hearing all the time, which is oi, right? You know, British people are always like, oi, 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 oi. That's an entire conversation. (laughs) In that conversation, I asked how somebody was. They said they were fine, but their mother was not doing well. But hopefully she's okay. And then I said, well, where's my money? And they said, look, I'll get you my money the moment that my mother's better. And probably about the 50th time, I said, oi, this man halfway down the block from us, he stopped in his tracks, just And he kind of turned around, very suddenly looked at us with this very intense expression, and I was like, is he waiting for us? We got up to him, and he was like, yes. And I was like, no. Let me describe what he looked like. He was a six foot tall white gentleman, pale white skin, White hair that went down to his shoulders. He was wearing black shirt, black trousers, black boots that went up to his knees, black trench coat that went down to the boots, an eye patch, and a cello case. Okay. Anyway, he's like, how may I help you? Like, sir, I'm just... Entertaining my girlfriend here with hilarious observations about British slang. You know, because I speak English, but I am American. And that's a completely different English. And this is England, where the English was started. The seeds of English were planted here. And you've grown it into its own little bush. And at the top of that bush is a little, a little berry. A little berry that I've been eating that's so delicious. And that berry, slash that expression, is oi, sir. That's all I'm saying. And he is like, yes. I am Oi. And I was like, oh, my goodness, I just met an expression. Put my hand out, I'm like, nice to meet you. And he said, nice to meet you. And took off into the night. Ever have an experience where you're not the lead in the movie? Because that's what that was. I was a supporting role in whatever story this guy was in the middle of and I have no idea what he was doing. Maybe he is the story that British people tell their children to stop them from saying oi. Like, David, don't say that again, or a man will come in the night with a cello case.
2: Comedian Baron Vaughn. You can see him on the Netflix series Grace and Frankie or at Riot LA Comedy Festival next weekend, where I'll co-host his comedy showcase, The New Negroes, with Open Mike Eagle. Oi, and that's a dinner party download for this week. Oi oi. oy. oy. Uh, what Rico said was, thanks to our senior producer, Jackson Musker, yes. associate producers, Krista Ripple and James Kim, associate digital producer, Christina Lopez, and interns, Kathleen McGovern and Emerald Douglas, Ben Talliday, Engineered.
0: And folks, if you haven't yet, please do subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. It really helps us out by helping other cool folks discover the show. You can find it on iTunes or wherever podcasts are podcasted.
2: And the party continues 24-7 on social media, where you'll find us on Facebook or on Twitter and Instagram, where our handle is DinnerPartyDNLD. He's Brendan Francis Nunum. I'm Rico
0: Galliano. Till next week, bon appétit.